Welcome back to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Luke's at my apartment and I'm drinking a cup of uh, official Three Stooges premium coffee, which I ordered from threestooges.com or whatever the official website was. I've been wanting to order it for years, but the shipping price has always intimidated me. But, uh, you know, I just I just finally said YOLO. Some things are worth uh, some things are worth the expense, I guess. And it's, it's good stuff, I think. You know, my compliments to Mr. Shemp. And so is this the coffee that they drank? Is this a, a particular brand that, uh, you know, Mo and, and Curly and, and, and Larry, like, manufactured? Or what's the, what's the story here? Well, I would assume so. I mean, in all of their films, they always seem pretty wired. They always seem pretty high-strung. They're always, they're always getting into conflict and poking each other in the eye. And that seems, that, that seems like caffeinated behavior to me. Well, uh, Will, to his credit, uh, did actually allow me to try some of this, uh, this miracle juice. But he was very adamant that I not be allowed to drink it out of the uh, accompanying Three Stooges mug, which I can only assume came in the same shipment. Will is currently drinking out of a mug that says, The Three Stooges Premium Coffee. Then there's a quote on it, uh, not attributed to anyone, but it says, We sure mixed it, didn't we? Which I guess is probably a line from one of their movies. Not one of the not one of the iconic lines, I think. <laughs> Anyway, if I sound a little hoarse today, it's because Luke and I were actually both out last night at a social event, and I was I was like, it's it's been two years since I've been to a bar, so like <laughs> I forgot that sometimes you're talking loud to talk over the music, and then when you have a lot of alcohol on top of that, you start talking even louder. So that's why my voice I think sounds a little different today. It's a whole style of conversation I'd completely forgotten about. <laughs> you know, when you're in a group of like four people uh, in like a corner of a bar somewhere. And you're at about, you know, you're sort of oscillating somewhere between like 75 and 80% comprehension as to what people are saying. Yeah. And, and, you know, the liquor is flowing. So you're like, I love you, man. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> I left a little earlier than Will. But as soon as I arrived today to record, I could uh, tell that he'd stayed uh, on the later side of things. Well, there's a lot going on in the world, a little too much going on in the world, if you ask me. I mean, we could talk about some of that stuff or we could talk about something really light and fluffy. Uh, this week I watched the first hour and I, I am hoping to finish it soon, but I watched the first hour of a movie called The Battle at Lake Changjin, which for a time, at least for a couple months, was the biggest movie ever released in China. Biggest box office success. What year was that? Uh, last year. And it was so big that two weeks ago, The Battle of Lake Changjin 2 came out, which has <laughs> surpassed the box office record of the original. And that, how can it be possible that there is already a Battle of Lake Changjin 2? But I, I think they shot it at the same time. I mean, not only was there a Lego movie, there was very quickly like a Lego Batman movie. There may be a Lego Indiana Jones movie. What's surprising? to me is just that, you know, China is apparently uh, intent on copying, uh, you know, the American blockbuster format. Soon every character in these movies is going to have like their own cinematic universe. You know, they're going to do the book of Boba Fett and, you know, the Mandalorian and uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. But for, uh, you know, each of the each of the soldiers in this movie and all the extras as well. The movie's very interesting. In the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a great resurgence as China has invested more and more into its film industry. And as the film industry has become more and more centralized, there's been this great resurgence in like historical propaganda blockbusters. And this one, there are five credited directors, three of whom are very famous 
Chinese directors, Dante Lam, Choi Hark, and Chen Cage. Chen Cage came to prominence in the 80s and 90s. He made a movie about the Cultural Revolution called Farewell My Concubine that was banned in China. Although, you know, now now he makes the Battle of Lake Changjin. I, I don't, don't know what's going on there. But it's amazing to have, like, these three heavyweight guys working together on this, you know, not, not particularly good movie. <laughs> this, this very commercial blockbuster. Right, I mean, so that was going to be my next question. I mean, uh, what would you say, I mean, accounts for the the success of it like what what is so what is so broad about it that it was able to reap those kind of results at the box office well there's a lot happening there are a lot of forces in china right now i mean there's as we all know increased saber rattling between china and the united states i know that in terms of the film industry china is allowing fewer and fewer american movies into the market because they don't need them as much anymore although uh, woody allen's last movie is opening there this week he got a theatrical release and Shang-Chi did not, which I think is hilarious. Well, is this how conservatives are going to be won over to the Chinese model? Because I think uh, I think the CPAC conference was, or some, there was some kind of major conservative conference the, the past week in the United States, and it was in some kind of stadium or huge conference hall or something, and they had like a big slogan plastered everywhere that was like, awake not woke or something (laughs) and so like maybe if people sell them on the idea that well like hey they don't have cancel culture in china uh maybe maybe they'll uh, get really into it Uh, president xi has seen through the western disinformation propagated by hbo's documentary division (laughs) and is is giving mr allen a second chance (laughs) uh anyway battle at lake changjin i'm kind of enjoying it so far because it is an unabashedly anti-american war blockbuster It, it was commissioned presumably in this atmosphere of increased saber rattling between the two countries so it plays like a very normal war blockbuster it plays like pearl harbor or something like that but instead of ominous asian people like plotting the attack it's ominous americans <laughs> plotting their attack on north korea china's film industry there's so much more money in it than there was 30 years ago but the quality of white guy actors has remained exactly the same <laughs> like it's still just guys that they've picked up off the street <laughs> to play these roles so they're so fucking funny it's my dream to play like a bad american soldier in a chinese propaganda blockbuster well so do you think there's like a, a stage like, do you think the next stage of this, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when the Chinese film industry is even more powerful and influential and lucrative, like, is the next stage that they're just actually getting, like, like not literally Matt Damon, but, like, that caliber of, like, American, you know, Hollywood star or whatever to, to play these parts? Well, actually, it's funny you should mention Matt Damon, because he actually was in a Chinese propaganda blockbuster a couple of years ago. He was in The Great Wall, <laughs> which was... A movie that was made at a different time in Chinese-American relations. That was when the strategy was for increased cooperation between the two film industries. So they brought Matt Damon over to star in this movie. And, you know, it was by Zhang Yimou, this very celebrated Chinese filmmaker. But it was a very, it was a movie that was pandering to the American market. And then when it came out in America, it tanked, partly because it was a bad movie, and partly also because there was controversy over the alleged whitewashing of the cast. There were a lot of people on Twitter, there were a lot of think pieces about, why is this Chinese story being told with a white person in the lead right so a backlash not in china but <laughs> no well and, and like it was mostly people who didn't understand that this is a chinese propaganda movie like this is a movie that was made to sell china to america and then america saw it and they thought what's with this white savior narrative <laughs> what can you say about how um you know the chinese film industry actually works 
Well, there are, you know, producers and companies who make movies in China, but there is a very powerful central body called the China Film Administration that is an actual government body that reviews if a movie gets made. You know, they review the script. And they've also taken an increased role in recent years of strategizing the country's film industry. In December, they just unveiled a five-year plan that was like their vision for what China's film industry will look like as it promotes Chinese values. So like some of the points in the plan are they're directing studios to focus on, uh, it's funny, at least 10 masterpieces. In other words, films that are both critically well-received and popular, as well as about 50 blockbusters, films that will gross 100 million yuan each year. I'm, n- I'm not an expert on all the ins and outs of China's film industry, but a very funny thing that's happened in recent years was in 2018, Jackie Chan and John Cena filmed a movie with the working title Project Extraction, which has never actually been released, and it probably never will be released. It's just been sitting at the top of their IMDb pages for the last four years. And it will probably never be released because it's a story about China and America working together in, like, the Afghanistan war. And relations between the countries have changed since then, and now this $80 million movie is just, like, sitting on a shelf somewhere. Unlikely to ever be released, even though it stars Jackie Chan and John Cena. So that's the kind of control, like, the China Film Administration has over the film industry in China. Well, good thing, you know, there's still a film market somewhere where, you know, the state and, you know, the the Pentagon and and institutions (laughs) like that, uh, you know, don't interfere or fund or have anything to do with, uh, you know, the culture industry. Well, before we get into our movie, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about something uh, extremely goofy on Netflix that I watched recently. Uh, it's called The Last Czars. Are you familiar with this? Have not heard. This is an entry into you know a style of docu series that, frankly, I don't I don't really tend to like. This is the kind of uh, you know documentary that combines uh, you know real footage with uh, you know reenactments. So it's kind of a drama, but then with like talking heads, historians, and the like, you know, running through the real history, but because because it's a drama, you know, it has to kind of create emotional investment in the characters. They have to have arcs and things like that. And I think uh, the last czars really showed the uh, the limitations of doing that because you know it's a it's a few episodes and it begins around the time of Tsar Nicholas II's uh, coronation, which I think was in the late 19th century, possibly the, the the turn of the century. I can't quite remember. But you know the first few episodes, you know, uh, right up until the First World War, it's just a series of him just epically screwing things up. <laughs> So, you know, the, the Tsar's coronation, this huge event and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Russians, a lot of them peasants, you know, uh, walked from like the far corners of the Russian Empire to be at the coronation. And the coronation was so badly organized, you know, there wasn't enough food for everyone. Like they hadn't treated the ground properly. So the ground got all messed up. And, you know, it was so badly organized. People, uh, you know, th- there was like a stampede. People got trampled. Uh, there were thousands of people killed. And the Tsar... Uh, on uh, you know the advice of uh, his advisors decided to to not go and be seen to be in sympathy with any of the you know the the wounded or the or the victims or anything like that and he just like went to a posh ball instead <laughs> so it's like pretty much right from the beginning of his reign there was just like this sense of like a curse on the whole uh, on the whole dynasty you know and then a few years later he starts a war with Japan for no reason like promptly screws it up uh, orders the Baltic fleet which is the entire basis for like Russian power 
power in Europe. He's like, okay, uh, well, the Asian fleet uh, couldn't get it done. Let's send the Baltic fleet. Baltic fleet sails halfway across the world, loses a battle with the Japanese Navy in about like 30 or 40 minutes, loses a lot of its big ships, just totally humiliating. So the first few episodes are just like running through this like litany of disasters. But because it's this docu-series, Tsar Nicholas and, you know, the Tsarina and their children... Uh, and also Rasputin, who I'll come to, they're all characters. And like in the same way that in any kind of drama, you know, there are people that uh, the audience is supposed to identify with and who are kind of the protagonists, like functionally speaking and like structurally speaking in the arc of this documentary, the Tsar and Tsarina are the protagonists, even though they're just like very clearly like as all the actual, you know, historical discussion is showing and all of the footage, they're just totally inept people running this like extremely autocratic country like other countries in europe at the time right there were plenty of monarchies but like a lot of them were kind of constitutional monarchies by that point the russian empire was just like an autocracy extremely dysfunctional and like ruled by this by this point very inept and and decadent dynasty like totally out of touch with what was going on in the country and another thing because it's a drama and because you know they have to make the romance between czar and czarina uh central is there's a lot of sex scenes and they kind of have that quality of, you know, at the beginning of Tommy Wiseau's The Room, where in the first 15 minutes, there's just like three sex scenes for no reason and they all go on too long and there seem to be shots almost repeating themselves and stuff like that. The Last Tsars kind of has that quality and that extends to how they portray Rasputin. Rasputin's uh, played by a guy, the actor's clearly from the north of England and, uh, you know, he spends most of his time just like doing like sex cult stuff, which is all, you know, really silly. But then again, because, you know, this is all building up, like we know where this is building up to, like it's building up to the uh, execution of the Romanovs by the Bolsheviks, having spent the whole series showing how, you know, inept and and incompetent and at times brutal, needlessly brutal, the Tsar is, it then tries to make the whole thing into a tragedy. So it doesn't really work on on any level, but uh, was nevertheless pretty fun viewing. I will say all of my favorite stuff just came in stock footage that I'd never seen before. Like, I didn't actually, I don't think I actually realized, or maybe I realized, but hadn't seen that there's, you know, actual footage of, like, Tsar Nicholas II's coronation and things like that. So all that stuff was really cool. But the series in general, a good demonstration of why this uh, docu-series format, particularly when it comes to history, uh, is a pretty terrible format that yields some extremely poor uh, and incoherent results. But anyway, since there's nothing going on in the world right now, um, and, and certainly nothing that pertains to uh, to Russia or anything else that we were just discussing, uh, should, we, should we get into our movie? Oh, yes. I think this episode's kind of going to exist a little bit outside of time. <laughs> like all great art, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, you know, uh, check out our Patreon if you want to hear, uh, you know, our hot takes about uh, anything that may or may not be happening anywhere in the world. Well, uh, as I learned from the movie, true art exists outside <laughs> of time, and uh, we will be talking about an artist today. His name is Eldon Hoke, better known as El Duce, and he is the subject of the 2019 documentary, The El Duce Tapes. How do you describe Mentor's music? What is it to you? Uh, male chauvinism rock. What songs do you think are his best songs? Um, I guess maybe Free Fix for a Fuck is a big favorite of mine. I think to a certain extent he's like a great artist in that he doesn't really give a damn what people think of him. I've got my lyrics and if they don't like it... 
Now, uh, this is a movie that I'm bringing to the podcast uh, over over some protest from Luke, I have to say. <laughs> I had just watched this movie recently, and I was very eager to situate it in a thread that's been emerging in the podcast recently of sort of 90s culture war stuff. We've talked a couple times about Howard Stern peripherally. We talked about Larry Flint last week. And this is a movie about a figure definitely less known than those, far less respectable, I think, than those figures. I'm the one of us who's always interested in bringing the more sleazy and problematic subject matter to the podcast. I I should just say as a word of warning or as a word of caution that of all the cultural figures we've talked about, El Duce's work is probably the most offensive and the least defensible. I don't like his music. I'm just going (laughs) to put it out there. I don't think you should check it out. I'm not going to make a case for it. I want to say that uh, Will said all of that of his own accord and not because uh, there was a masked gunman uh, just (laughs) off of camera with uh, placards uh, that he was reading from. I do like this documentary, though. I at least find this documentary an interesting time capsule, I guess is the word. It's built out of footage that was captured by a guy named Ryan Sexton, who was an aspiring actor in California in the early 90s. He became equated with El Duce, who was a shock rocker. Shock rock is kind of an outmoded term now, but it was used a lot in the early 90s, just as shock jock was. If you can call it a movement, it included Guar, the famous uh, rather theatrical heavy metal band. They're probably the most respectable shock rockers. It also included Gigi Allen, who's probably the least respectable of them all. Gigi Allen was the guy, some of you may know him, he would like shit on the stage and he would roll around in it and he would, you know, do stuff like that. There's a very good documentary about him by Todd Phillips who later went on to direct Joker, believe it or not. (laughs) Gigi Allen was the original Joker. Well, if you heard our last episode, uh, you may recall that one of the criticisms I had of the movie uh, The People vs. Larry Flint was that it didn't really uh, honor its own thesis in the sense that it presents uh, everything to do with Larry Flint as just this very straightforward, you know, civil rights, free speech case, free expression case. And it doesn't really adequately show what the full implications of that are because uh, it's too, it was too interested, I thought, you know, even though uh, I thought our pal Woody did a great job uh, as Larry Flint and Courtney Love was great as well. The film itself is just too, uh, it's too airbrushed. It's too unwilling to show the ugliness of the real Larry Flint or of, you know, some of the stuff he was putting in his magazine. And as if in answer to my challenge, uh, Will tabled this film, which, you know, if there was ever a a movie or a documentary through which to explore uh, the the implications of a maximalist approach to uh, free speech and free expression and all of the ugliness that that's going to include, uh, it would be this one. Now, before watching this documentary, the only experience I had had with El Duce's life and art was he makes a memorable appearance in Nick Broomfield's documentary, Kurt and Courtney, which I'm sure some of our listeners at least will have seen. That movie gets very sidetracked in its midsection exploring conspiracy theories about Kurt Cobain's death, a popular conspiracy theory being that uh, Courtney Love paid to have him killed. The film shows Broomfield visiting the home, well, not the home of, but uh, a residence of El Duce, where, you know, this very peculiar looking man says to Broomfield, oh yeah, Courtney Love came and she gave me uh, however many thousand dollars to kill Kurt Cobain. And then Broomfield in his narration dryly notes, he didn't seem like a very reliable witness. (laughs) Two days after our interview, he wandered drunk in front of a train and passed away, which was true, by the way. (laughs) It's a good nickname. Broomfield. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, so I was interested to learn a little bit more about the man's life and art from this documentary. 
the actual director of the documentary, the 2019 film, is named Rodney Asher. He directed Room 237, which is an interesting film about The Shining. And he works uh, very much to situate El Duce into sort of like a 2019 Trumpian context, which which is the law for all documentaries now. I don't know about the, the Trump angle specifically, but I do think there are aspects of El Duce and, and his uh, his band that are kind of uh, proto-alt-right. I mean, definitely, sort of, you know, provocation for provocation's sake. The fact that, you know, the, the, the ideologues, as it were, of this movement, when they're interviewed in the film, quite openly say that, you know, hey, this is the only way to get eyes on anything, you know, on anything. This mm-hmm. is the only way we can sell uh, records. I think one of them describes, uh, you know, their trajectory as, you know, a self-conscious act of selling out. You know, it turns out these guys who do this, you know, it cannot be stressed enough, this extremely shitty metal-adjacent music. <laughs> I mean, it's really, the music is really, really bad. It's really uninteresting. But it turns out these guys uh, tried to be jazz fusion people. <laughs> like, El Duce's drumming, he talks about, you know, first I discovered the Jimi Hendrix experience. I wanted to sound like Mitch Mitchell. And then I got into The Who, and I wanted to sound like Keith Moon. Uh, but then I discovered, you know, you know, jazz fusion and stuff. I started listening to, like, Chick Corea records and things like that. If people aren't familiar with uh, 70s jazz fusion, it really is pretty out there. It was a place that some jazz artists, including some very well-known ones, ended up in because they got bored of playing, you know, bebop, and then later uh, what was often the kind of more more structured and kind of um, rigorously composed jazz of the, you know, late 1950s and early 60s, they started moving out into musically just totally cosmic territory. One album that kind of captures this that people might be familiar with is the Miles Davis album, uh, Bitches Brew. So from that point on, you know, there were all kinds of uh, people playing this music that you could really, you can really only listen to if you've listened to like hundreds of jazz records first. Otherwise, it like doesn't really make sense. A lot of it's really, you know, dissonant and stuff. But so these guys tried to play that, basically. And you hear them talking about how like, you know, we, we made the music. We thought it was really good. I think it's it's notable. We never seem to really get to hear any of it. Um, but so they talk about like trying to be a successful fusion group. Uh, and then they say like there was nowhere to play this stuff. Like there was one club in Los Angeles that advertised that they played jazz. You know, they, they hosted jazz fusion bands. They wouldn't hire us. Uh, so he's like, we, we decided to do dumber music that like people could understand. We put on like stupid masks and hoods and stuff. And then we started saying extremely offensive lyrics because that was the only thing that got anyone to pay attention. And, you know, the lyrics themselves are... Well, to give you an idea of the quality of the, of the music, some of the less offensive lyrics are, there's a moment where you hear a snatch from a song where he goes, Men are superior. Women are inferior. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other thing about it that's like proto-alt-right is how deliberately misogynistic a lot of the provocations are. Like, it's very proto-manosphere kind of stuff. He calls it male chauvinist rock at one point. You did some deal with Courtney, right? Yeah. She offered me 50 grand to whack Kurt Cobain. Yeah, I was telling you. She what? 50 grand to whack Kurt Cobain. And that's that's a fact, is it? (laughs) But uh, people might think you're not the most reliable witness. Well, that's too bad. You may not be the reliable witness your own self. (laughs) Now think about that one. God dang, I wish I would have taken it, man. But I 
I know who whacked him. The documentary opens with this montage of where the culture was at in the George H.W. Bush era. So, you know, you've had uh, 12 years of Republican rule, and there's this montage where you see George H.W. Bush saying, we need more families like the Waltons and fewer families like the Simpsons. You see Andrew Dice Clay, Rush Limbaugh, flag-burning stuff. Rush Limbaugh appears, and it's in a clip where he's talking about, uh, like, he's basically doing, like, an anti-free speech argument where he's like, but if it offends people, religion i mean and you see like roseanne scratching her crotch while she sings the national anthem at that baseball game a lot of that stuff and the impression being given is that you've had 12 years of stifling family values rhetoric from both major parties and as a result something was brewing in the culture there was this backlash in underground culture that was dealing in very transgressive themes running parallel by the way to the shock rockers were also things like nwa which this movie doesn't really get into that much. I'm sure a lot of the shock rockers would not have regarded themselves, certainly El Duce would not have regarded himself as like in league with or a, a contemporary or colleague of, <laughs> of some of the rap performers at the time. But like, clearly it was part of the same whatever atmosphere was brewing in the underground at that time. I think the main reason why I wanted to talk about this movie was because it really shows the limits of society's horizons at this moment that this is what the transgression was. This is what Tipper Gore and the Republicans were getting really anxious about this time. You see El Duce going on all these trash daytime talk shows. He's on Wally George and he's on Jerry Springer, who are ostensibly the two trash talk show hosts on differing ends of the political spectrum. <laughs> but like, they've united in condemnation of this guy and his horrible misogynistic Bipartisanship. <laughs> yeah. And when El Duce talks about his background, he talks about growing up, he's clearly very traumatized by his relationship with his father. His father helped design bombs for the Vietnam War. And he decided to grow up and become a repudiation of everything that his father stood for. And what he actually grew up to become was a different style of reactionary. You see him throughout this movie talking about, we're not like any of that uh, sissy glam rock stuff. He uses a much unfriendlier word than I just <laughs> used. <laughs> uh, and he says stuff like, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to be white. Why shouldn't I be proud to be white? Uh, Heil Hitler, you know, stupid provocations like that. Very homophobic very sexist. There's very little that he and Rush Limbaugh would actually disagree on, except just some of the language they would use, the affect they would use to express it, as well as the fact that El Duce has consciously become a class traitor. He's decided to go from presumably an upper middle class upbringing to being literally homeless. We see him panhandling on the street. We see him going for welfare checks. All these appearances on Jerry Springer and Wally George have not brought him a living wage. Like, he has embraced poverty as a lifestyle. This is probably what gets at these moralists more than anything he actually says. It's this embracing of backwards mobility. I think something else about it that that makes me think of him as sort of a proto, like, yeah, 4chan guy circa, you know, 2015, 2016, is that there definitely is a very reactionary kind of irony that he's attaching to a lot of this stuff. Mm where there, you know, there's a real kidding, not kidding, you know, he's playing a character, except in a very crucial sense, like he's obviously not playing a character. But while he's saying all this sexist and racist stuff, uh, the joke's on you because you're offended by it. You care about it more than he does. He's just sort of flippantly saying it. Right, which was very much the fuel of like the type of trolling that became synonymous with the alt-right and the sort of, you know, Pepe culture and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It would be very pretentious to like say to Mr. Duce, uh, you know, if you, if you really 
really wanted to repudiate your father, you should have had a more coherent worldview. <laughs> because because like, what what is this guy? This guy's a mushroom that bloomed under the rock of American culture and society. You know, there was no there was no plan there for how he became what he was. And obviously, he's limited by his own imagination. You know, I think if he really wanted to challenge bourgeois society, he could have I don't know, embraced gender nonconformity, for example, right? <laughs> like, he might not even have been allowed on the Jerry Springer show at that point if he <laughs> added that to the mix. Well, okay, he would have been allowed on Jerry Springer, but <laughs> certain other shows, maybe not. Something else that I think makes him kind of a proto-alt-right figure in some ways is just the extent to which, and we've kind of alluded to this already, uh, what he's doing is really a pure provocation, which is to say... The provocation is the point. It's not, you know, it's not just like secondary or like a corollary that also helps him sell records. He and the people in his band are all very open about this. There's somebody talking about how, you know, this parents group targeted them or something. And they just sold like a ton more records because, of course, it put them on the map. There's an there's absolutely surreal footage of a Senate hearing where one of their songs that I think had been covered by Frank Zappa. There's like <laughs> some some hapless United States senator just reading the, these like incredibly <laughs> vulgar lyrics. And I mean, that is, you know, uh, the triumph of trolling right there. You know, it produces a, a reaction from officialdom and then in the process, you know, helps popularize like the band and its, you know, quote unquote message. <laughs> I kept waiting in this documentary for someone to actually make a case for his music. We meet a lot of people who know him. We meet a lot of his uh, friends, his long-suffering romantic partners and colleagues and bandmates. And not once does anyone actually make a case for the music. There's this one guy who is, I guess he's a friend of El Duce's, and he's often deployed to provide like chin stroking commentary on the significance of his music and at, at one point he says i think el duce is is a true artist and and most music is not true art and the off-screen interrogator says how would you define art and he says okay art is art is art is something that exists outside of time it, it deals in in universal <laughs> themes that are not married to the moment, which, you know, it's obviously a pretty stupid thing to say because all art is a product of its time, you know, and, and none more so than El Duce. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know, El Duce records are hardly the Tempest, are they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people do try to make a case for him as a performance artist or just as, I guess, as a pr- provocateur. I mean, I, I persist in thinking that his greatest contribution to culture was his cameo in Nick Broomfield's Curtin Courtney. Whenever it, it is the anniversary of Kurt Cobain's passing, I again rue El Duce for having robbed him prematurely from the world. I think I'd make the first greatest dictator that this country has ever had. I'm American all the way. I enjoyed the documentary and, you know, El Duce is a very tragic figure on top of everything else. He becomes, as the film goes along, debilitated by alcoholism to the point where he basically just becomes the town joke. You know, people put a coin in him and watch him make a fool of himself. And he does die at age 39, wandering in front of a train. 
Um, you know, there there are a lot of times in the documentary where you, you kind of want to laugh at him, but your laughter almost instantly gets stifled, both because of how troubled he obviously is, and because, frankly, of how genuinely toxic pretty much everything he says is. Well, this is in some ways uh, only tangentially related, but there were some developments this week, you know, before the, before the news cycle very much became about uh, something else, there were some developments this week in both uh, Texas and Florida that I think taken together are quite instructive about where the right-wing political imagination is currently at. When we've dealt with similar themes on past episodes, I think we've also sketched a kind of crude, but in in many ways, uh, useful narrative about liberals and conservatives, in some ways, uh, trading places at various points from the 1960s to the present. Insofar as, you know, if you take conservatives in the 80s, you had, you know, the moral majority and you had, you know, a type of political rhetoric that, you know, as we saw from uh, Rush Limbaugh in uh, in the El Duce tapes throughout the 80s and 90s that I think was kind of more uh, open about being hostile to free expression and things like that. You know, and then there's an extent to which liberals and, you know, even some people who think of themselves as progressives or even radicals seem to become, you know, more interested in, in norms than, you know, perhaps people of those persuasions had been in the 1960s, whereas, you know, conservatives, particularly with the rise of something like the alt-right, come to embrace kind of ugliness and transgression and also at the same time really quite aggressively adopt the mantle of like, we're the the free speech crusaders, we're the anti-censorship people, we're the not-woke people, etc., And with all this in mind, I want to introduce for consideration a few recent efforts from Republicans in uh, both Texas and Florida. And I think it's really important to kind of see all of these things together because there's, there's an apparent contradiction between them that I think ultimately isn't really a contradiction at all. It's something more sinister. So, of course, before the news cycle got elsewhere, we had Abbott, the governor of Texas, issue this directive to the commissioner of the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services to launch investigations into any instances of what he referred to as uh, these abusive procedures. Now, if you haven't heard of this, what he was referring to, I'm quoting from an article, uh, I believe from The Nation here, under threat of criminal prosecution, he called on licensed professionals, including doctors, nurses, and teachers, to report families who affirm their transgender children for potential investigation. Uh, Even though neither document is binding on either the DFPS or the courts, the Texas political leadership has made parents terrified to send their children to school, to take them to the doctor, and to remain in the state. Now, something else that's happened recently in Texas is the lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, saying, I think this was last Friday, that he wanted to end tenure for professors at public universities who teach critical race theory. So uh, quite literally, you know, meeting out professional discipline, you know, to people for, for doing wrong think there. Uh, meanwhile, over in Florida, you have, you know, something that people are calling the don't say gay bill. In Florida, of course, Ron DeSantis has also pushed anti-CRT uh, directives and stuff like that. There are efforts to limit uh, how, you know, issues concerned with uh, race and racism can be discussed in, uh, in classrooms and that kind of thing. This bill that I referred to would prohibit school districts from having organized discussion of any kind about gender identification uh, or sexual orientation among students. And so I think it's interesting to think about all three of these things in tandem here, uh, particularly in an environment where the right's big rallying cry is still, you know, we're the, we're the champions of free speech, we're not the censorious ones. 
The idiom that they've really embraced, and I'm, I'm not sure when the right introduced this, it's certainly been around for some time, but you know, the way that a lot of the school-related bills are justified, right, is under this whole rubric of parental choice. That's kind of like the hack they use for, for getting out of the, you know, you're, you're attacking, uh, you know, freedom of expression, people's identity, that kind of thing, is they're saying, well, like, hey, you can discuss this all you want, but that's a discussion for private spaces. Public schools, you know, parents need to have choices about what their children are taught, that kind of thing. Then you go over to Texas, where the governor is quite literally directing public officials to investigate parents who affirm their children's gender identities. And you can see, like, parental choice is not really, you know, that's not an operating, that apparently that's not a universal operating <laughs> principle for uh, the Republican right. So, of course, that's an obvious uh, contradiction. And, uh, while I think it's useful to note the contradictions in right-wing politics, I don't think you can really stop there because I do, I do think there's a tendency among, you know, certain liberals to, to think that, you know, once you expose the hypocrisy of something, you neutralize it, right? Uh, who can forget, you know, the famous scene in, in the West Wing where, you know, Bartlett comes into the room and there's that Christian radio personality or something. And, you know, and she doesn't want gay people to get married. And then Bartlett starts, you know, I don't know, quoting Leviticus at her or something. And and, you know, owns her with her own logic. And, uh, you know, that's the Christian right uh, dealt with, just disappeared in a puff of smoke after that. Obviously, that doesn't work. I think it's much more interesting to, as it were, try to reconcile the contradiction because that will tell you uh, what the actual political project is. And I think in many ways, doing that here uh, really shows us that the you know right-wing political project in really important ways, hasn't changed substantively for decades. You know, the, the types of idioms that it uses, the types of rhetoric it uses, the themes that it embraces, those may have changed, but those are very context-specific. In some ways, they're reactive to what liberals are doing or, you know, what struggles are happening in society at, at one point or another. But broadly speaking, I think the right embraces a version today of, of the same, you know, extremely illiberal project that we associate with something like the moral majority. It's just that the rhetoric around it's changed. And to some extent, even though the ends are similar, you know, the ends are still to build a type of society that's very hi hierarchical, you know, socially as well as economically, where social conservatism isn't something that's, as it were, like a privately held position among some people. It's a public philosophy that is enforced by the state and enforced on the culture and imposed on the culture. Those ends may be similar, but I think the means have really changed. And, you know, I can't really remember where I first saw this observation. It might have been from a, a piece of writing by Corey Robin, but something that's very noticeable about the right today is how much that rhetoric of majoritarianism has really gone away. On our Patreon, uh, you can hear my recent discussion with Matthew Sitman and Sam Adler-Bell of the Know Your Enemy podcast, uh, and we talked about the, the recent National Conservatism Conference. One of the things that animates the so-called National Conservatives really is this sense that, you know, their proposition is a minority one. You know, they're no longer using this language of the moral majority and so there's, you know, an increasingly authoritarian and illiberal turn going on, you know, at the very moment where conservatives in the culture wars are kind of cosplaying as like, we're the free speech advocates, we're the anti-censorship people. I mean, it's hardly a novel point, but yeah, all you have to do is look at the grotesquely authoritarian stuff coming out of Republican administrations in places like Florida and Texas to see that, you know, that is not even a little bit the case. Mm -hmm.